the emotional felt sense of our attachment to objects, to people, to ideas, to notions of the self, to, you know, the conditions of our life and to life itself. And that attachment is extremely powerful. From there, my mind drifts to thinking about my dad's last days, um, you know, before he died and I was taking care of him. Author and Zen priest, Ruth Ozeki. And of course, I was very attached to him. But what was really so painful was watching his passionate attachment to his life just at the point where he was leaving it. That was something I'll never forget. Welcome to Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum of Art that uses art to explore the dynamic path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm singer and songwriter Ravina Arora, and I've been learning about the transformative power of art throughout my life. Since time immemorial, art has been used as a portal to better understand ourselves and the world around us. At the Rubin, a museum dedicated to art from the Himalayas, we believe art can inspire us on a path to awakening. And in the series, we're using a specific artwork, the mandala, to explore this journey and the emotions that accompany us on the way. But what is a mandala? A mandala is a guide. People from many cultures and religious traditions around the world use mandalas as maps to navigate their inner lives, including their emotions. Throughout the series, with the guidance of scientists, Buddhist teachers, writers, artists, and activists, we wrestle with five challenging emotions. Anger, pride, attachment, envy, and ignorance. To help us take a new perspective on how emotions can influence our day-to-day experiences and what they might be able to teach us if we get curious. In this episode, attachment. Psychologist Tracy Dennis Tawari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Hunter College, City University of New York. What I would think of attachment as being is an evolutionarily primed uh, motive. It's a crucial and necessary aspect of our social evolution. And when I think attachment, I start with early child caregiver attachment. So I think about this bond that very naturally and automatically will form between a primary caregiver and a child, and any caregiver and a child. Zogchen Panlap Rinpoche is a leading Buddhist teacher and one of the foremost scholars and meditation masters in the Nyingma and Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So this emotional desire or passion, it can be a very positive one. And I learned this also from having a child. You know, they talk about, you know, psychologically, you know, it's important for a child to develop this attachment, right? So I truly see that. Mark Epstein is a Buddhist and Freudian psychiatrist. His most recent book is The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. Attachment describes what happens for an infant and young child as they develop uh, relationships with significant others. 
And in psychology, we often actually characterize that attachment as secure or insecure. And we do that based on a couple ideas. One is that we have an idea that this early relationship that we have with a caregiver, it creates what's called an internal working model or set of expectations that we apply to the whole world in how we approach other relationships. And so this internal working model is based on experience. It's based on the repeated experience that when you have a need, that your caregiver is predictable or not, that they will help you meet your needs or not, that you can explore out into the world, but then come back to your caregiver as a sort of a safe base. And when you believe that the people in your life who care for you are predictable, reliable, and can be a safe base from which you can go out and explore the world and then come back, you tend to develop what we call a secure attachment. So a healthy attachment means that the relationship is a good one and that uh, difficult emotions that arise in all of our relationships can be understood and tolerated and made use of. And there are emotional aspects to attachment. There are those warm feelings between a caregiver. There's the distress when you're separated from your caregiver. But there's also the ability to repair that distress. So there's this emotion regulation component to a secure attachment whereby you are separated from your caregiver, especially we're talking now about young children. And you have distress, but you can manage it. And when your caregiver comes back, it's a source of comfort for you. So there's this bond that's formed on a behavioral level, emotional level, on a thinking, cognitive level. So it's unavoidable. (laughs) It's part of our kind of uh, gene, so to speak. It's a genetic emotion. And you can also have an insecure attachment, however, as you can imagine, where the expectations and experience with that caregiver is that they are perhaps unreliable, perhaps they are even punishing, perhaps they are reliably distant from you. So there are all these different kinds of experiences of emotional availability, of reliability, and whether you can use them as sort of a social resource that can also direct you towards having a more insecure attachment and therefore expectations about the world that mirror what your experience was. When there's attachment that doesn't go well, you know, anxious attachment or trauma around attachment that's called developmental or relational trauma, then attachment is frustrated and uh, not secure. And then people develop a lot of trouble with their emotional life. Now, that doesn't mean that attachment style, as we call it, is set in concrete, is set in stone. But it it does mean that, from the perspective of psychology, that these early relationships help us uh, form expectations and goals around other relationships we have in the world, whether those are friends, other family members, or romantic partners. Now, that's different from how religious traditions talk about attachment, but that's the psychological perspective. From the Buddhist perspective, Attachment has a different meaning and connotation. The Buddhist thing about attachment is really about craving or about thirst or about clinging sometimes. Panlap Rinpoche. The flip side of the attachment or desire or passion is that there's this sense of 
obsession, an obsessive quality of mind. You know, it goes into the state where there's no limit, you know, no limit of how much we have or what we get. We want more and more and more. And so the flip side of this desire sometimes develops this quality of what we call poverty mentality. You know, no matter how much you have, you still want or, or you feel you need more, right? And so therefore, it, it becomes quite negative from that perspective. That was the, the Buddha's actual first noble truth, you know, about dukkha that usually is translated as suffering. But I think a better translation is uh, unsatisfactoriness, that there's a sense of unsatisfactoriness that comes through even pleasant, even pleasurable experiences. It's tinged, it's got this shadow, you know, like not enough. So how do we learn to stay with that without rejecting it? You know, and that's what the teachings of mindfulness, you know, not clinging to the pleasant, not pushing away the unpleasant, or if there's something slightly perverse, not clinging to the unpleasant and pushing away the pleasant. But how do you just stay with the entire range of your experience? One of the things I used to do to try to help me have a better sense was whenever I was using the word attachment, I'd replace it with control because that's what it, I think, means. Buddhist teacher and author Sharon Salzberg. It can have, have different senses also, like his craving, which is kind of an incessant wanting, never feeling you have enough or you are enough. And that too is problematic because it's endless. There's no final new gadget that's going to make you not feel that if that's what you're perpetuating. And so that's suffering for that reason. And then there's clinging, which is I'm attached to you being a certain way. It's like control. There's a, a, um, a famous book by Ann Carson uh, called Eros, the Bittersweet, that she took from Sappho, you know, from the ancient Greeks. She's a, a poet, but a Greek scholar. So it's about Eros or desire, you know, the bittersweet. But she says the Greek word is actually sweet, bitter, you know, because the sweetness comes first and then, oh, it's not, it's not quite what I wanted. You know, it's not exact. It doesn't last as long as I wish it did. So then the bitterness comes in at the end. And therein lies the challenge and contradiction of attachment. You want this thing and you often get it, but it might never be exactly as you wanted it. There's a sense of longing for more. So it's sweet to have this wonderful experience and bitter to want more of it. Novelist and Zen priest Ruth Ozeki has explored ideas around attachment through her work. You know, speaking in a Buddhist context here, of course, one direction is towards the Buddhist idea of attachment as a root cause of, of suffering, right? And as such, attachment is something that is undesirable. You know, we want to rid ourselves of this. Again... Sharon. So it's not even like the, the Buddha said attachment was bad or wrong or terrible. He said it's the root of suffering, and we can see it. It means you're in defiance of the truth of change. You're trying to assume control over something or someone you can never control. You're not allowing yourself to enjoy whatever it is because you're so freaked out about it ever leaving you or changing or how you can get more of it or whatever, that you're in some other place, so you're not even being fulfilled. 
by the delightful circumstance or person or experience, it's a mess. It's a sort of a a social captivity or an emotional captivity that these things and, and people and objects and, you know, that we are creating the separation between ourselves and the rest of the universe in a way that that uh, keeps us locked in notions that cause a lot of suffering, notions of I and you, and notions of mine and, and yours. And, and so I think of, I think attachment is this very complementary notion in, in spiritual traditions, complementary to the psychological notion. The other foundational teaching of Buddhism is that everything is interconnected, you, you know, and that, that we don't exist as the isolated person that we think we are, you know, that in fact we're deeply attached, we're inextricably attached to each other and to the world. You know, we can't pull ourselves out of the world. That's the revelation. So how do you reconcile that with a sort of superficial teaching that we need to be free of attachment? I, th- I think the Buddhist teaching about attachment is more instinctively, we want things to be more secure, m- more absolute, more under our control than they possibly can be, so that there's always a gap between what we wish for and what we have, and that we somehow have to learn how to work with that gap, whether it's reconcile ourselves to it or come to terms with it, work through it, or I think it's more allowing ourselves to dwell in that space that exists between desire and its object. Activist, doula, and author Adrian Marie Brown speaks beautifully to this. One of the biggest things that happens is we are able to relinquish the idea that some of us are good and deserving of good things, and some of us are bad and deserving of bad things. And I feel like when we let that go and we recognize that all of us do good and bad things, all of us have innocence, all of us have harmful behaviors, all of us, especially depending on the systems we're participating in, all of us are complicit in what's unfolding in this world. It's not happening without us. It's not happening in spite of us, it's, it's happening directly because we exist and because of the choices we make. And I think once we recognize we all have those contradictions, then we can begin to get curious with each other. Well, then what is our way forward together? And then, you know, yet another direction is this sense of attachment, you know, the, the attachment we feel. And this is where it really does become an emotion, right? The emotional felt sense of our attachment to objects, to people, to ideas, to notions of the self, to, you know, the conditions of our life and to life itself. And that attachment is extremely powerful. And sort of from there, my mind drifts to thinking about my dad's last days, um, you know, before he died and I was taking care of him. And of course, I was very attached to him. And But what was really so painful was watching his passionate attachment to his life just at the point where he was leaving it. And that was, you know, that was something I'll never forget. When we dig deeper, 
change is happening every single moment within ourselves. Our blood is moving, our cells are regenerating, time is evolving, and we are getting closer and closer to the inevitable fact that one day we will die. Author and Zen priest, Ruth Ozeki. My dad, um, I, I kind of have to back up a little bit to talk about my dad. He, I think, had his first heart attack when I was about seven years old and he was in his late 40s. And then after that, he had five or six major cardiac events. And, and so there was always a sense that my dad had a weak heart and that he was vulnerable and that, you know, he could slip away from us at any moment, right? And so I kind of grew up with that sense, that sense of fear that, you know, that I might lose him. But he did manage to survive, you know, for, for another 40 years, right? So his condition was very well managed. But at the end of his life, he was going downhill, oh, probably for about, you know, two years. And I would be going back and forth between wherever it was I was living, you know, sometimes it was New York, sometimes it was British Columbia, Canada. And... Um, at the very end, my partner and I had just moved into a new place on a very remote island in British Columbia in an area called Desolation Sound. And we moved into this house and we had no internet at the time. We had no telephones connected up yet. So we were really cut off for about three days. And then the phone line was connected and the phone rang immediately and it was the it was the police it was the RCMP and they were trying to get in touch with me because my dad um you know my dad was dying and so i you know got on an airplane and and flew back as quickly as i could and um he was in hospice at that point and it was just so clear to me that he was struggling with remorse you know, he would wake up in the middle of the night and start to think about all of the things that he hadn't done. And he would start to moan. And I would hear that and I would wake up and I would, you know, go to him. And, and he would then tell me about all of these things that he hadn't, that he hadn't accomplished. And in his case, it was really very, very poignant because the work that he was doing at the time and the work that he was, you know, really remorseful about, um, he, was a, he was a linguistic anthropologist and he was working with indigenous um, languages, endangered languages, and had spent a good portion of his youth working with the Oneida language. And there was information that he had that he had never written up. And so this was information that was going to be lost if he died. And he knew that. And he was just tormented by it. You know, it was his attachment to these people who he had lived with for a very long time and, and you know, whose stories he had recorded and whose language he had helped to create a, an alphabet for. You know, he, he was really very, very much involved in the Oneida world. That was what tormented him at the end of his life. And I never forgot that. I, I never forgot the pain that he was in. And of course, there was really nothing that could be done about it. It's the attachment to memory, isn't it? It's the attachment to memory that, um, and they can be painful memories, they can be happy memories, they can be confusing memories, they can be, you know, memories that cause all sorts of squirming and remorse. Memory and attachment are so profoundly connected. 
In the mandala lab, attachment is illustrated through a sense of smell. To give visitors a visceral experience, master perfumer Christophe Lodemiel created specialized scents for visitors to sniff and make their own associations. Visitors press a button and breathe in fresh laundry, cigarette smoke, rice fields, the earth after it rains, and a waterfall. We all know that feeling of smelling something and suddenly being transported to a very specific memory. That smell and experience are inextricable from each other, and we are inevitably attached to that memory. Wherever you are right now, what do you smell? Gasoline, dish soap, trees. What does it bring up for you? I'm in a recording studio, and it's the recording studio I made my whole last album in, so I get a lot of memories from this smell. <laughs> what are some smells that you feel deeply attached to? Your grandmother's perfume? the smell of popcorn. Guests at the Reuben shared some of the smells that they felt particularly attached to. When I smell Chanel number no. five, I remember my grandma Rose, who always wore red lipstick and was dressed to the nines. When I smell incense, I remember my grandfather praying before opening his store. When I smell rubbing alcohol, I remember my sister preparing her prosthetic leg. One of the clearest and most ubiquitous ways attachment shows up in our lives, primarily in the Western world, is through the attachment to things. Capitalism is all, it counts on, it feeds on our desire to be something that we're not. It feeds on dukkha, feeds on our discontent. In fact, Ozeki's most recent work, The Book of Form and Emptiness, explores just that. One of the characters, Annabelle, the mother, has a hoarding problem. It gets especially acute after her husband's death, and she just hangs on to things of his, right? She doesn't want to get rid of anything. And I had a similar kind of experience after my parents died. You know, I'm an only child, and so cleaning up the house and getting rid of the things and selling the house, all of that fell to me. And my parents, you know, they weren't hoarders exactly, but they were both born in 1914, and they grew up during the Great Depression. And they were very, very frugal people. They never threw anything away. Like every piece of tin foil had to be carefully washed and then pressed and then folded and saved for reuse. Same with saran wrap, hung up to dry after it's been washed. They really did save everything. And um, when I went to the house to, to clean it up, you know, it was literally packed to the rafters with things, including every check my father had ever written, you know, were in boxes arranged by date. And just the act of shredding all of these thousands of checks 
each one that had been you know written by hand and his signature was on each of these checks it was painful to be shredding these because it was like shredding a part of my father i think that's an ongoing question how to find the strength to release things in a closet on a shelf i came across this little box that was about i don't know about the size of a, a little bit bigger than a book and i looked inside and it was empty and then i noticed that on the outside you know it was in my mother's study and on the outside my mother had labeled the box and she had very carefully in english written empty box and then just to make sure she had written the same thing in japanese karabako which means empty box you know i looked at this thing and i'm like you know mom really you know what am i what am i supposed to do with this right it's an empty box you know i can't put anything in it because if i put something in it it'll turn it into exactly what it's not right but i couldn't throw it away either because it's like so you know it's just so typically mom and so again you know this is something else that ended up on my altar like next to my grandmother's ashes next to my mother's ashes next to my father's ashes you know there's just this kind of whole accumulation of things that i am very attached to and it's just going to be very hard to get rid of i was invited to write a little essay for um, marie kondo's website right her blog and I wrote about how the kind of winnowing and clearing is something I really aspire to on one hand but on the other hand as an artist the criteria of sparking joy is not as useful to me because actually what I want to hang on to um as an artist are the things that spark other kinds of darker and more complex feelings like sorrow for example grief confusion but this is the stuff that story grows from think about how boring stories would be if they were just all about joy there's no story there <laughs>
quality of awareness, you know, awareness. As you can see, you know, to have empathy, you need a strong awareness. To have compassion, you need strong awareness. So it's a very important uh, emotion. Therefore, you know, there's this sense of the energy of this passion, energy of this desire uh, has this uh, quality of wisdom, which, is, which we call discriminating awareness. So I'm, I'm in favor of trying to find what's helpful and healthy about acknowledging all aspects of our emotional experience. So not classifying attachment or desire or aggression or even anger as a toxin or a poison or something unhealthy or something that we have to get rid of or something that an enlightened person no longer struggles with, uh, et cetera. I'm, I'm from the perspective of being a therapist influenced, deeply influenced by Buddhism, I'm of the thinking that all emotional life is worth paying attention to. And that if we can learn how to pay attention to it mindfully, it will liberate itself and therefore enlighten us. That is the point of embracing all the emotions, particularly in the context of the mandala, the artistic representation of the path to enlightenment. The afflictive emotions shouldn't be dismissed, but acknowledged and seen as an opportunity for growth. When it comes to attachment, the teaching of awareness may be one of the most fundamental and vital teachings of all. An open mind in the face of difficult feelings creates a space for a new way of thinking to emerge. Openness, you know, a sense of possibility, meeting things more as they are. Yes, it's, a, it's applying that kind of attention to even the what we would ordinarily experience as frustration. But if you take the frustrated quality, if you, if you don't um, privilege the frustration, but instead just allow the space, then that space, there's a lot to learn from that space. Space, the space for inquiry, the space for letting go, the space for seeing things in new ways. Stephen Batchelor has this nice way of describing it, where um, if you put a coin in the palm of your hand, there's two ways to hold it. If you turn your, your hand upside down, you have to clutch the coin so it doesn't drop. But if you open your hand, you know, if you open your palm, the coin will just sit there. Attachment can be very constricting. But when we open up our palm a little bit, new perspectives are possible. Beginner's mind is the mind that is, is open to possibility versus in the expert's mind, the possibilities are few. And, and I think that if you start thinking of yourself as an expert, you know, in, in writing or in life, you, know, uh, you, you really do limit the possibility of what can happen. Whereas if you approach it in this kind of more open, kind of liberated way, suddenly the world opens up for you. Possibilities open up. It's like if you go into a meeting at work and there's someone there who's very attached to things working out in a certain way. So they've got like a big thing about that and they cannot hear other possibilities and maybe 50 other possibilities are presented. 
some of which might be kind of intriguing to pursue just to see. It's like they cannot hear it. They can't take it in because they have decided, you know, and they're living in this very narrowed kind of constrained playing field. And then you imagine the opposite. Like you have your preference, you have your principles, you have your values, but you go in and you think, let me just hear what other people say. And maybe what they're saying isn't, it's not going to oppose those deeper things for me, but it's going to be another whole way it might play out. And that's a very different mind state. Time and time again, what we come back to is the importance of cultivating discriminating awareness, whether explored through a meditation practice or in your day-to-day life. What are the ways that you might draw awareness to the way you live? That's the path. That's the beginning of the path. That's the beginning of the path. And then the intermingling of insight and compassion, you know, the understanding that insight and compassion are not separate things, but are the same. Uh, that's the fruition of the path. Because eventually, I think, you know, what, it, what does one really get out of all this practice? It, it actually, I think, has more to do with developing a sense of compassion for oneself than necessarily some vision of enlightenment that we think we know from, you know, reading the books or hearing the teachings. Empathy and desire are linked in, in this way. Desire or um, passion is the fundamental emotion that <clears throat> help us to connect with the empathy, sympathy, compassion, love, kindness, all that. I wouldn't see it so much as one being the antidote for the other, but as one developing into the other, you know, through this process of being non-judgmentally aware, but empathy also for the disappointing other. Because so much of our desire is directed at the, the person or people who are supposed to be there to satisfy us, you know, uh, to give us the attention that we inherently feel that we need and deserve, and who always inevitably disappoint somewhat. But to uh, be witness to that process and then to realize out of that that each person is truly a subjective other who could never be totally in sync with us is to develop empathy, you know, and to accept some degree of failure that that doesn't obviate, that doesn't destroy the bond that still we all uh, need and want and feel. You know, like reality is always confronting us with our expectations. And that's, again, a basic Buddhist principle that our, our expectations are part of what causes our unhappiness. And we can't just get rid of our expectations, but we can understand the relativity, you know, the contingency of our expectations so that when reality doesn't meet them, we can be open to the humor of it or the, what is the actual experience in that moment. It's nearly impossible to think of a world free of attachment. As Ruth Ozeki says, I should be able to imagine a world without attachment. I should be able to imagine a world without ignorance. And I think that 
pushes right up against the edge of my powers of imagination. Attachment, ignorance, these are qualities that, you know, that we will never be without. And so it really is a question more of how to acknowledge that and learn to work with those qualities and how to work with them in a way that's not destructive. It's not about not having these emotions. It's about using their energy to evolve and transform, to see more clearly and prevent these emotions from running your life. I think this this, this sort of push and pull of emotions is baked into the kinds of experiences they are because you don't think about having an emotion and then have it. <laughs> you know, the emotion happens. So much so that we also, you know, we also often feel that it's happening to us, right? It's so, we're primed, they're powerful, we feel the energy of them, we feel that it's pushing us or pulling us in some direction. And if you think about why humans would have such experiences that are so salient and powerful, it's they need to grab our attention. Emotions are telling us that there's something very important and that there's a solution potentially at hand, but you need to work for it. It's emotions that give us the push and pull and energy and the wake-up call and the, and the joy and all those things that keep us going on all of these paths. So I think that we have to lean into the sharp points of life. I think as Pema children, if I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm destroying that quote a little bit, but we have to lean into the sharp points and engage them and use them to be fully human. Thank you for listening to Season 2 of Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum that explores the dynamic path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm singer and songwriter Ravina Aurora. You just heard author and psychotherapist Mark Epstein, Buddhist teacher and scholar Panlap Rinpoche, psychologist and neuroscientist Tracy Dennis Tawari, teacher and author Sharon Salzberg, author and Zen priest Ruth Ozeki, and activist and author Adrian Marie Brown. Awaken is produced by the Rubin Museum of Art in collaboration with Sound Made Public. Music produced by Alexis Cuadrado and Hannes Brown, with some additional tracks from Blue Dot Sessions. You can continue the conversation by following us on Instagram at, at Reboon Museum. And if you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about the conversation you just heard. This is episode three of a seven-part series inspired by the Mandala Lab at the Reboon Museum, an immersive space for social, emotional, and ethical learning. Come explore the lab in New York City or in one of the installations that is traveling the world. Visit rubenmuseum.org to learn more about the museum and about the art, cultures, and ideas of Himalayan regions. We look forward to seeing you. <laughs>